0: This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. We look today at the rising in Puerto Rico with professor, activist, and author Rafael Bernabe in San Juan, Puerto Rico, where two weeks of massive protests brought down the corrupt government of Ricardo... Roselló, and are continuing amid uncertainty about what comes next. The protest movement took off after the Center for Investigative Journalism released nearly 900 pages of chat messages between Roselló and his inner circle, revealing their misogyny, homophobia, and the contempt they held for the population. But it wasn't just the most recent events that brought the people's anger to the boiling point. The economic meltdown of 2008-9 hit a Puerto Rico already ensnared in a never-ending debt engineered by vulture funds and when natural disaster hit following economic disaster conditions went from bad to worse rafael bernabe helps us understand this trajectory and we get his take on what direction he sees for puerto rico after the magnificent success of the mass movement we then talk to ucla law professor and middle east expert asle vale about the us iran conflict and its defunct nuclear agreement trump continues to threaten iran aided by the mainstream media who are freaking out over Iran's supposed breach of the 2015 nuclear accord, seemingly forgetting that it was Trump who unilaterally tore up that agreement, arbitrarily imposing a new, brutal sanctions regime. Aslan looks at the deeper context of the chronic but escalating U.S.-Iran conflict and explores its trajectory now that Trump has essentially abandoned the deal. All this on Jacobin Radio Ahead. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weissman. Well, as I said in the intro, Puerto Ricans have been celebrating since Governor Ricardo Rosselló announced he would resign following roughly two weeks of Massive protests. More than half a million Puerto Ricans took to the streets in one of the largest mobilizations in Puerto Rico's history. The protests began after Puerto Rico's Center for Investigative Journalism published close to 900 pages of shocking text messages between Rosellon, the governor, his staffers, and advisors. The group chat messages were riddled with misogyny, homophobia, profanity, and violence. Some of the messages mocked victims of Hurricane Maria and joked about shooting San Juan's mayor, Carmen Yulín Cruz. Rafael... Bernabe joins us with this week's story as well as the political economic background to this historic moment. And Rafael is a professor and director of the Federico de Onis Hispanic Studies Center at the University of Puerto Rico at Rio Piedras. He writes widely and has published several books on Puerto Rico, including Cesar Ayala, Puerto Rico in the American Century, a history since 1898. That was published by North Carolina Press. And he was the Working People's Party candidate for governor in 2012 and 2016. Rafael, welcome to Jacobin Radio.
1: Hi, Susie, and thank you for having me.
0: Oh, it's great to have you. So we have a lot to do and about a half an hour to do it, and I'm really excited to get your analysis of what has happened. So maybe we could just begin with the story of the mass movement that took to the streets in Puerto Rico, roughly from July 12 to 24, a little bit longer. But these are the dates that led to the fall of Roselló, and we saw the development of the mass movement that brought him down. Can you sort of give us an overview of what happened?
1: Sure. As you mentioned, this is an unprecedented uh, event in Puerto Rican history. This is the first time in our history in which the people have taken to the streets and have removed uh, the governor uh, from office. Uh, it's it's an uprising, uh, a rising. There are many words that could could be used to describe it, which uh, which had never lived we we had never lived through before, and it it was uh, ignited. It was sparked uh, in the short term, as you mentioned, by the um, revelations of this chat between the governor and some of his uh, closer collaborators. Which were uh, truly uh, offensive and insulting uh, contained truly uh, revolting uh, misogynistic sexist racist uh, commentaries, which really um, uh, made people very 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 upset and very very indignant and from the very, uh, what you saw during those two weeks was the growing Uh, the the increasing size, the growing uh, mass uh, movement in Puerto Rico, it began with pickets of about 100 and 200 people in front of the uh, governor's mansion, and that grew to several thousand in a few days. And then we had marches of 30 and 40,000 people a few days later. And then we had a march. We had probably around uh, 500,000 people, which was an unprecedented uh, activity for Puerto Rico. And then two days after that activity, we had a march which was close to a million people. Wow. We're talking about an island that has uh, 3.1 million inhabitants. So when you talk about a, a, a march of a million people, you're talking almost about a third of the population. Uh, probably about half of the adult population of Puerto Rico was mobilized in this activity. So it's... it's uh, in the united states we would we would be speaking about uh, you know a march of a hundred million people or something like that
0: or even more, so, and it's so, could you ever think you'd only, see something like that Rafael?
1: no i never, i I always hoped I would, but yeah. i never thought i would uh, and we are certainly very energized by this uh One of the fantastic elements that uh, that um, uh, marks this this activity is the tremendous diversity. Of the participants, you have people from the uh, what we call the caserios, the uh, uh, housing public housing projects. You have people from the labor movement. You have people from the feminist movement. You have people from the student movement, the environmental movement. People who are not involved in any movement that for the very first time in their lives have gone to a a, a protest activity, and so on. So uh, you have very well-known international artists, Puerto Rican artists and singers that joined the movement. And you have uh, very well-known activists, as I said, in many areas, but, but also many people who, you know, for the first time are participating in this process. So it was very participatory. It was very collective. Uh, one of the interesting things about this movement is that it, it doesn't really have any leader. There are no any any major names or figures or individuals who are leading it. It's really a major uh, a collective uh, a process and a collective effort. Not a disorganized one, because without the participation, for example, of the unions, the labor unions, who have the experience of, of carrying out uh, battles and strikes and and, uh, and organizing them, you know, none of this would, would have been possible. But, uh, but it's, very, it's a very diverse uh, movement and uh, it has, uh, as I said, um, a, a brought together people from very different areas and has for the first time mobilized many people who in the past were sort of indifferent to this type of protest what, who have now uh, joined it. And it has really, um, the impact of the process is, you can, you can measure it by the fact that almost all institutions in Puerto Rico have been, uh, are in crisis right now. The major political parties are in crisis. They are very divided. They are very discredited. The political institutions in Puerto Rico are very discredited. People don't have any trust in the legislature, or, or the composition, of the present composition of the legislature, people are very upset at the media, which has been uh, the, the famous shot of the governor with his aides has demonstrated that many sectors of the media were in collusion or collaborating with the government and the governor to hide certain facts or to uh, doctor the information in certain ways so, so that it would favor the uh, the image of the governor and so on. So much of the media is very discredited. Uh, all the major institutions in Puerto Rico, TV programs which had panels, you know, with several panelists, they, they, they had to suspend the program because the panelists were fighting with each other wow. uh, over these events. Huh. So, so all, 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 of, all of Puerto Rican society has been shaken up by this uh, mass movement, and this is all for the better because Puerto Rican society needs uh, very profound change, uh, as, as you probably suspect.
0: Your description of this, Rafael, also matches the kind of anger that we've seen in other mass uprisings around the world. Not something that you can plan for spontaneous, but in this case there were specific triggers. And we mentioned the revelations from the leaked chats That showed complete arrogance on the part of the political class, not just arrogance, but contempt for the population. But let's go into some of these other triggers that led to this, you know, spectacular mass movement. Maybe you could go into a kind of deeper and broader background to the movement, for example, even beginning with, I guess, the colonial status of Puerto Rico and its relationship with the U.S.
1: Yes, yes the the as i said you said the uh, the immediate trigger was the uh, revelation the the uh, publishing of this uh, infamous chat with all of these sexist and racist comments and that also coincided with the uh, accusations against several cabinet former cabinet members of uh, of Rosellos government particularly the secret, former secretary of education Julia Kelleher, who has been accused of uh, corruption of, of appropriating public money mm. Uh, in, in certain, you know, through certain mechanisms. And that also uh, served to provoke the the uh, the initial protests that led to the resignation of Roselló. But all of this happens in a context, and the, the, I guess the broader context is the uh, economic crisis that Puerto Rico yeah. has been undergoing for more than 10 years now. The Puerto Rican economy has not grown at all for more than 10 years now. It's, it's uh, in, in a state of what one most describe as a depression, not a recession, a depression. To give you um, one one significant figure, uh, in the last 10 years, in the last decade, Puerto Rico has lost about 250,000 jobs, which is about uh, a fifth of the jobs that existed a decade ago do not exist anymore. Uh, many people, thousands of people, have been forced to migrate to the United States because they cannot make a living in Puerto Rico. Just about everybody has somebody in their family uh, who has left Puerto Rico in order to find work elsewhere. Uh, This has been a very uh, very hard, very traumatic experience for many people. And uh, on top of that, you have the um, the, uh, Hurricane Maria, which hit Puerto Rico in 2017. And not only the hurricane, but the incapacity of both the Puerto Rican government and the federal government to address uh, the Puerto Rico's needs for reconstruction as a result of the uh, hurricane. And on top of that, you have the fact that precisely because Puerto Rico's economy has been in crisis and in depression for more than a decade, the government of Puerto Rico has uh, has accumulated a tremendous debt, which it cannot pay, which it will never be able to pay. It can only try to pay it if it um, uh, inflicts terrible sacrifices on the Puerto Rican people. And faced with that economic cri- with that uh, debt crisis, the Congress of the United States created what w- what we call in Puerto Rico the Junta de Control the Control Board, which is a federally appointed board which um, basically uh, takes decisions regarding the finances of the Puerto Rican government, oversees the Puerto Rican government, and what the board has been doing for the past uh, three or four years is imposing terrible austerity measures in Puerto Rico in order to pay as much as possible of that debt. They know that they won't be able to collect the whole debt, but they want to collect as much as possible. And in order to do that, they have been cutting pensions in Puerto Rico. They have been uh, cutting the budget of the University of Puerto Rico, reducing public uh, uh, the public budget on many f- uh, fundamental services and so on, uh, reducing workers' rights, workers' conquests in Puerto Rico and so on. So, So you have an economic crisis, a debt crisis, the austerity policies that have been imposed on Puerto Rico, plus hurricane Maria, plus the inability of, of the government to address the needs of the people after the hurricane. So all of these problems and grievances have been accumulating over the years and uh, the publication of the famous chat uh, uh, kind of was kind of the uh, you know the the, the the straw that broke they like, come us back. You
0: know,
1: right. people, uh, all of these grievances accumulated and people decided, that, you know, enough, enough of this situation. We are going to, to go on the street and demand... A, a change of of this uh, of this government.
0: Well, before uh, we the, Rafael, just before we go yes, into but, like but, what that change represents, I wanted to just ask you. Maybe you could explain. I did have a couple of programs dealing with Puerto Rico's debt because it's not just a debt. It sounds like you know these vulture firms were trying to uh, ensnare Puerto Rico in the kind of. Never ending debt that, say, Greece had, or that Absolutely. they tried, like in Argentina, which literally allows these firms to essentially rob the entire treasury of the country, uh, and then that's yes, not yes. enough.
1: Two things about that. First, to, to answer something that you asked before, uh, the fact that the Congress can impose this. Um, uh, control board on puerto rico mm-hmm. is a is a reflection of the fact that puerto rico is a colony of the united states it has been a colony of the united states since eighteen ninety eight The united states invaded puerto rico as part of the spanish-american war and took over puerto rico still maintains control over puerto rico what that means in practice is that federal legislation legislation adopted by congress in which puerto rico doesn't have any representation or rules and regulations adopted by by the federal government, agencies of the federal government, or decisions by the president of the United States apply to Puerto Rico. Uh, and uh, in many cases, they apply, they apply in a very negative, negative way. And, uh, and and in any way, Puerto Rico doesn't have a participation in the taking of these decisions which affect the island. That's what mm. makes us a colony of the United States. and. And that allows Congress, for example, to, uh, given Puerto Rico's debt crisis, to organize, to create this uh, federal board and have that board regulate and control Puerto Rico's finances. And it's, and it's doing that, as I said, uh, to the interest or in the interest of the, um, of the people who own the debt of Puerto Rico. And as you mentioned, the people that Puerto Rico is indebted right now are in many, in a consider, to a considerable extent, what are known as vulture funds. Uh, vulture funds are funds which exist, investor funds, invest, investing corporations which uh, uh, specialize in buying um, buying at a very cheap price, at a discount rate, uh, debt of governments such as the government of Puerto Rico, which is which uh, which probably will not be paid. They, they they you know the people who own this debt sell it sell it at a discount because they they are they're afraid that they won't be able to collect uh, on this debt. The vulture funds buy it at a discount rate, and then they insist that they be paid in full. Therefore, they will, if they succeed, they will obtain an extraordinary profit, not mm. a normal profit, but an extraordinary profit. So, so their business is precisely to uh, attack economies that are uh, in in a bad shape, in order to try to exploit them even more. That's why they're called vulture funds. You know, they they right. take advantage of of the weak. They take advantage of the uh, of the poor and they want to extract as much profit as possible from a situation in which many people are already in a very distressful uh, condition. And this is what they, be, they have been trying to do. Uh, they have been trying to um, make sure that the board inflicts in Puerto Rico as much sacrifice as possible in order to liberate as much funds as possible to pay for the debt. This is one of the reasons why one of the demands that the movement has uh, presented, not only Besides the resignation of Roselló, is a demand that many groups have been uh, uh, arguing for uh, or, or proposing for a long time, which is the audit of the debt. We have to audit this debt. We have to find out uh, how this debt was contracted, under what terms, who has bought it, who owns it now, uh, what were the um, illegal or con- or constitutional or corrupt processes through which it, this debt was uh, was uh, con- contracted, and. Uh, and that will probably lead to the uh, cancellation or, of much of this debt, which will pro- will be proven to be either illegal or constitutional or, or illegitimate in some other. In some other way. I
0: wanted to ask you one other thing just about this before we move on, Rafael Bernabe, and that is when we saw it in Greece, we saw that the debt was inflicted upon the Greek people and they were, you know, said to be lazy and not productive, and so that they needed this austerity, that in some moral way it would be good for them. And it seems that you see the same playbook in Puerto Rico, that this punitive austerity that you've called it debilitating, demoralizing, privatization of, of schools and other sources was not done in order essentially to improve the economy, but to make it possible to essentially steal it blind. At least that's how it looks. And I wonder if you could just talk about it. Yeah, and was the, government, yes. was the government included in this or was this all done answering these private sources?
1: Well, I think there was a collusion between the government and this these private interest. The government had an interest in uh, uh, not uh, initially, it, it had an interest in going into debt instead of uh, taking other measures. For example, one of the big ironies of the situation in Puerto Rico is that while the economy is stagnant, while the government doesn't have money to pay for public services, there are major U.S. multinationals and corporations that operate in Puerto Rico, that pay very li- very little taxes in Puerto Rico, and all economists agree that these corporations extract from Puerto Rico's economy every year about 35 billion dollars in profits. Wow. So you have a government whose budget annual budget is around a little bit less than $10 billion, about $9 billion, the budget of the government of Puerto Rico. And at the same time, you have three times that amount of money, of profits, generated in Puerto Rico by U.S. corporations which leave the island, not invested in Puerto Rico, doesn't pay taxes in Puerto Rico. So for many years, the government of Puerto Rico, instead of putting at least some some uh, uh, taxes, you know, some, uh, some contributions to be paid by these corporations that operate in Puerto Rico, instead of doing that, what they have done is going to debt until that debt has grown to an unsustainable level. Wow. Uh, so one of the one one of our demands is that you know we have an economy which works for these very big corporations doesn't work for the people and that has to be addressed as well. We would not be in such a debt crisis if these corporations invested in Puerto Rico and if these corporations pay taxes which they should pay in Puerto Rico, uh, and we are we have fallen into this debt trap to a considerable extent because the government is not willing to touch the privileges and the profits of these very large uh, corporations. So um, the—and as you mentioned, this is, of course, is not explained to the people that way. They justify the austerity policies by saying that we have been, you know, uh, spending too much money, that we, we, have, we have lived a good life and we are too lazy and, and we have not been careful with what we spend our money on and so on, and this is the reason why we are in debt. And the reason why we are in debt is because we have been terribly exploited and uh, and, uh, the government has only been able to function. by going into debt since he's not willing to touch the very big profits of these uh, corporations.
0: Rafael, I uh, want to interrupt you for a minute because I want to make sure that we get through all the topics about the mass movement itself. And, and what you're talking about, Rafael Bernabe, is the sort of conditions that led t- to the spectacular mass movement when people basically said that they've had enough. And I wonder, you know, because we know how mishandled the response to Hurricane Maria was and the absolutely disgraceful response from the United States and President Trump, who, you know, threw a roll of uh, paper towels rather than actual huge amounts of money to help rebuild the infrastructure of the island. And instead, we saw a contract go to a tiny firm in my home state. Whitefish Montana that had zero experience doing anything yeah. and just took 80 million more dollars yeah, for White, this
1: Whitefish I think it was called Whitefish, Yeah, Whitefish right? and it's a yeah, gorgeous yeah. place
0: I know it well but but nonetheless <laughs> so these all come together and especially I think you know the fact that the natural disaster you know inflicted even more pain on the island but it what I really want to get to in this last eight minutes or so is how all of that created this movement and have you describe the movement, you know, itself. You said it was spontaneous. It was literally a third or more of the population in the streets, but maybe you can tell us a little more.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I, 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 I don't think that spontaneous would be the right word. I think it's the culmination of many, many initiatives of the past. Uh, The difference is not now it's massive. It has become massive but, for many years now, for example, the students at the University of Puerto Rico have been very active fighting against the junta the the board the control boards uh, austerity measures one of the one of the consequences of the austerity measures of the junta is the uh, cutting of the budget of the University of Puerto Rico. The students have been very active against that. They have carried out several student strikes against that. In the same fashion, the feminist movement in Puerto Rico has been very active in recent years, uh, protesting against the tremendous level of uh, gender violence in Puerto Rico, violence against women in Puerto Rico. The um, LGBT community in Puerto Rico has been very active, denouncing homophobia in Puerto Rico. The environmental movement has been very active in recent years, protesting against different schemes. For example, the, uh, Puerto Rico we still generate some of our electricity with coal, and coal generates tremendous pollution and heats up the planet, and it generates the, uh, uh, leftovers, which are very uh, polluting and so on. So all of these movements have been active, and, and they have been mobilizing, and they have been raising consciousness about these, uh, these issues and these questions. The labor movement, as well, has been fighting against austerity measures. And all of these activism, all of these mobilizations uh, have been going on uh, in a more or less sectoral way. You know, we have everybody mobilizing in their sector in their, uh, according to their concerns and so on. And, um, but now uh, all of that has built up into this massive explosion in which hundreds of thousands of people who, had in, in the recent past, would, would not be very in, interested in these movements or these protest movements. Some of them would, would even be against them. Uh, mm. But now they have realized that, no, that these movements have been, you know, right all along in resisting this government and that and they have joined the, uh, the, the struggle. The challenge now is, of course, to uh, organize this tremendous MAP movement, because uh, the fact is that, you know, you have, as I said on July 22, you had probably around a million people in the street in Puerto Rico protesting against this government. But these million people are not organized. After the march, after the activity, they went home, and most of them do not belong to a union. They do not belong to a feminist organization, an environmental organization or organization of any type. And now it's a challenge for us activists to make sure that as many people as possible stay active, and as many people as possible are able to join some form of organization or collective uh, so that uh, this uh, movement does not dissipate, does not, uh, you know, uh, evaporate, but that it uh, builds, continues to build, continues to grow, and continues, and we can transfer the all the energy generated in the struggle against austerity we can transfer that uh, to the struggle against the austerity measures the struggle against the uh, control board the struggle against colonialism and so
0: on. So well, I was going to ask you just on that, Rafael Bernabe, because you mentioned at the beginning that it was the arrogance and the hubris and the contempt that was displayed in those chat messages that led for the call for uh, Ricardo Rosselló to resign. But now what happens? I mean, we're, we're talking about sustaining a mass movement and seeing whether or not you know some new form of leadership comes out of it. But, but what is the exact next step? And does this mass movement have specific demands that will somehow fashion the new leadership on the island?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, I think, well, the, the, first of all, I think we have to be realistic. I mean, as as experience shows in many other countries, when you have a major mass movement with hundreds of thousands or millions of people participating, it's inevitable that there will be you know, a, a sort of a downturn. Not, not everybody can stay mobilized every day after every day, and you cannot have mobilizations of a million people every every week. Uh, you um, there will be after the victory of Roselló, there will be a sort of regroupment uh, in which people will will re, you know, the people have to work, people have to uh, retake their normal lives in a certain way. But, uh, but there, will be, there will be a significant amount of people who will be politicized, who will be organized, who will be activated, have been activated by, by this process. The immediate uh, fight now is the succession fight, because mm. the, governor, the, go, the government was in such a crisis that the governor was forced to resign. And in Puerto Rico, when the governor uh, is unable to perform his uh, office, he is replaced by the secretary of state. We don't have a vice-governor uh, office in Puerto Rico. So it's the secretary of state who takes the place of the governor. But there's no secretary of state because the secretary of state had resigned as a result of this uh, growing crisis. So there's no secretary of state. So the governorship now goes in the succession line to the secretary of justice, whose name is Juan Davasquez. And this person is very discredited, or almost as discredited as the governor himself. Wow. So there's already a movement. Uh, um, demanding that the Secretary of Justice resign and that somebody else become Governor of Puerto Rico, because it, it, you know it, we don't people don't want to replace a corrupt official with another corrupt.
0: Exactly. Official.
1: So, so, uh, so the government is very much in crisis. Next Monday, there's a, a, a big demonstration called for at five in the afternoon in order to demand the resignation of the Secretary of Justice. So the movement is not by any means uh, finished. It's, it, uh, many people are insisting that we must continue to clean the house and remove not only Roselló but other uh, uh, corrupt officials. But I think that at some point, uh, at one point or another, we have to go beyond simply demanding the resignation of this or that officer. We have to make a positive proposal. We have to make our own program. We have to present our own program of what we want uh, done in Puerto Rico. And as I said, that has to include uh, audit of the debt and a moratorium on any debt payments until that debt has been audited. It has to include the demand that Congress, uh, what you would perhaps in the United States would call uh, prepay reparations for the Mm. impact of colonialism in Puerto Rico. It uh, allot a significant amount of funds to allow for the re- economic reconstruction of Puerto Rico uh, due to Hurricane Maria and due to the economic crisis that we, we have been living through for 10 years now. It has to include a new tax policy which uh, allows us to uh, keep in Puerto Rico some of the profits that now leave the island every year, which is a tremendous amount of uh, money of capital that is not reinvested in Puerto Rico, and it has to include many other measures, you know. But um, but I think the, the main challenge now is to be able to create some sort of flexible, simple, uh, efficient coordinating mechanism of this movement, some sort of assembly or congress or coordinating committee, the name is not important, that would bring together all the different organizations and movements in all their diversity that have participated in this process, that they can agree on certain basic demands. And I think we also have to think of how we are going to uh, create a political representation of this movement. Because if we overthrow, as we have done Roselló, and if we uh, remove all of these corrupt officials, but we do not have our own political movement, for example, for the elections in 2020, then the old political parties are going to win again. Right, and, you know, we'll be left with the same things.
0: Rafael, we're gonna to have to leave it there. We've just run out of time completely, but you've given us a lot of a lot of information and I, I wanna revisit this with you. As you know, this movement continues, uh, especially after we know who's going to replace and what the program's gonna be. There's still a lot to talk about, but I wanna thank you for your analysis and really comprehensive view of what's been going on in Puerto Rico for the last several weeks that led to this spectacular mass movement that overthrew the Governor and thanks for joining us, Rafael Bernabe. And I wanted to just say Rafael is a professor and director of the Federico de Ones Hispanic Studies Centers at the University of Puerto Rico in Rio. Piedras. He writes widely. Just Google him. You'll find his articles. He's also published several books on Puerto Rico, including with Cesar Ayala here in Los Angeles, Puerto Rico in the American Century, a history since 1898. And he was the candidate for the Working People's Party for governor in 2012 and 2016. Rafael Bernabe, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And we're going to be talking about Iran. The mainstream media is freaking out over Iran supposedly breaking the nuclear deal, seemingly forgetting that it was Trump who tore up that agreement. And in the 2015 accord, Iran agreed to reduce, redesign and convert its nuclear weapons program as stipulated in exchange for the United States ending all nuclear-related economic sanctions. It was the U.S., in other words, that unilaterally withdrew from the accord and arbitrarily imposed now a new brutal sanctions regime. Iran, for its part, is it looks like, returning to its previous program. So we're going to dig beneath the surface today to look at the sources and the context of the U.S.-Iran conflict and try to understand its trajectory now that the Trump administration has essentially abandoned the deal. So Asabali is going to join us for the bigger picture. Asabali Bali is professor of law at the UCLA School of Law, and she served as the director of the UCLA Center for Near Eastern Studies and is faculty director of the UCLA Promise Institute for Human Rights. You should just Google her because when you get to her bio page, it's incredibly impressive. Her research focuses on two areas, international law with an emphasis on international security and and nuclear nonproliferation, and comparative law of the Middle East with an emphasis on human rights and constitutional design, which, in other words, makes her ideal for this conversation today. And I'm really pleased you're here, Asla. Welcome to Jacobin Radio.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, okay, so let's, I kind of did just a thumbnail one sentence of what, you know, happened in that deal. Let's begin with the broad terms of the context of the U.S.-Iran relationship, and what was the significance of the 2015 nuclear deal?
2: Many of your listeners and much of the American public may not be able to really place this mm-hmm. in the broader context, so I do think that's helpful. And I'll just start with a quick anecdote. When the Arab uprisings began in December 2010, January 2011, was discussing it with one of my colleagues here, and he said, well, I hope this isn't 1979 all over again, by which he meant the Islamic revolution in Iran. And I responded by saying, well, then we should hope it's not 1953 all over again. And he just (laughs) blinked at me. (laughs) Totally puzzled, had no idea what I was saying. And what I was saying is that for Iranians, the modern relationship of the country to the United States begins with the U.S.-British covert operation in 1953 that removed the democratically elected prime minister of Iran, Mohammed Mossadegh, Mm -hmm. to restore the sort of authoritarian rule of the Shah. And then what ensued after that, between 1953 and 1979, when that revolution occurred was a quite close alliance between the United States and Iran, resembling very much the relationships that the United States today has with other Gulf monarchies. Um, When that monarchy, the Iranian Shah was deposed, The U.S. allowed the Shah to arrive in the United States for medical treatment, which provoked mass protests following the revolution in Iran that culminated in an attack on the U.S. embassy and the 444-day captivity of 52 American diplomats who were in that building, um, which is known in the U.S. as the hostage crisis and is really the pinnacle, the the starting point for many Americans of our relationship with Iran, the 1979 hostage crisis. That crisis ended in 1981 uh, following the election of uh, Ronald Reagan with the Algiers Accord. Uh, Uh, And the diplomats were released uh, and the United States, which had seized Iran's assets at that time, which were enormous in the United States because, again, of that relationship between the Shah and the United States, rather than unfreezing those assets, the U.S. transferred those assets to an international tribunal to be used to resolve claims by Americans against Tehran. And mm-hmm. that began the pattern that we see to this day, which is one in which the United States uses its enormous capacity to impose economic coercion on Iran in order to leverage um, influence achieve its interests or contain the country. Uh, so with that background, that what ensued after uh, 1981 was two decades, the 80s and 90s, in which the U.S. relationship with Iran oscillated between cooperation and confrontation. So for example, the Reagan administration both led a worldwide effort to block arms supplies to Iran during the Iran-Iraq War, and simultaneously entered into a secret arms sales agreement with Iran in an attempt to achieve a bunch of other objectives, including funding the Nicaraguan Contras in their battle against that country's government. So the U.S. has played both sides in a variety of ways, and in the 1990s uh, the Clinton administration sort of adopted that uh, approach and decided to declare formally that it was going to engage in dual containment. The relationship, obviously, Mm -hmm. between the U.S. and Iraq had declined in the meantime following the invasion of Kuwait, and so So both Iraq and Iran were to be contained with a significant sanctions regime. And that was the situation uh, just up until 9-11. After the September 11th attacks, the Bush administration initially benefited from significant Iranian assistance, specifically um, in the aftermath of the attacks in Afghanistan, Iran played a role in the ouster of the Taliban and in securing and stabilizing the country in 2001. The Bush administration went on, however, to designate Iran as part of the axis of evil, mm-hmm. another moment that will be familiar probably to many of your listeners, in January 2002, signaling the end of that brief period of cooperation and a massive escalation in confrontation under the Bush administration, which led an international campaign to impose sanctions um, on Iran far greater than those that had been in place under the Clinton administration. And this was largely in response to the revelation that Iran had continued to maintain a nuclear program um, following the islamic revolution something that hadn't previously been known the bush administration refused to negotiate directly with iran the europeans attempted to do so the u.s did not back those negotiations and instead pursued confrontation eventually persuaded a number of countries including the europeans to join it in the u.n security council and imposing um, consequences for alleged non-compliance with the non-proliferation treaty and beginning in 2006 Iran was subject to both Security Council sanctions and U.S. sanctions. The Obama administration entered and ratcheted up actually significantly the pressure that the Bush administration had begun to apply, but that turned out to be part of a broader strategy to actually engage in negotiations. So after some nearly 40 years, the United States under the Obama administration entered into formal negotiations with Iran, resulting in 2015 with what is called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or is colloquially known as the Iranian nuclear deal, the significance of which more than anything else, more than the sanctions relief or what it meant about the nuclear program, was finally breaking through four decades in the case of the United States and in the case of Iran, six decades of deep mistrust between the two countries and entering into direct Talks face to face where the American Secretary of State and the Iranian Foreign Minister, together with other countries, were able to come to a clear, uh, direct agreement.
0: So, before you go into that, Asli Bali, I should just say, too, because I've been around long enough on this radio station to have covered even, you know, this period from not from 1953, but at least during the Shah's regime and then, you know, the Iranian Revolution, the hostage crisis, and also. You know, the Khomeini regime, which, you know, started to make the Shah look less terrible than he was, even though it was awful. And we used to regularly report on the way that he used torture uh, through notorious Savak and other things. And we don't need to go there. But one thing that I thought was kind of novel, and maybe we won't have time to get to it, but was the way that the United States then froze the assets of Iran. And, you know, it seemed novel to me. I don't know. You could probably, with your legal background... Say whether or not that had been done with other countries elsewhere, but it certainly did seem like an incredible in, what, intrusion into not just the state, but also other people who had assets. But in any case, we should go right away into the terms of the Iran nuclear deal in 2015, since that's the subject at hand.
2: Sure. The Iranian nuclear deal was basically a very transactional arrangement in which Iran, in exchange for significant sanctions relief, agreed to enormous restrictions on the Permitted nuclear program, so the nuclear program it's allowed to have under the MPT, um, civilian nuclear activities, uh, and subjected itself to an extraordinarily intrusive inspections regime. So to just give it a little bit more detail, uh, Iran agreed to eliminate its existing stockpile of medium-enriched uranium. That's not weapons-grade, but it's sufficiently highly enriched uranium that getting it to weapons-grade is there is faster than would be the case with low-enriched uranium, which is the category you would normally use as fuel. It also cut its stockpile of low-enriched uranium by 98%, so it massively reduced its stockpile of just regular, ordinary nuclear fuel that does not have proliferation implications. It reduced by two-thirds the number of centrifuges that were operating for enriching uranium in the country for 13 years. It limited all enrichment activities to 3.6%, which is the lowest possible level for uh, use as nuclear fuel, and agreed to do so for 15 years. It also agreed not to build heavy water facilities for 15 years. Those are the kinds of facilities used for creating plutonium, a different path towards a nuclear weapon. All uranium enrichment in the country was limited to a single facility, and that facility was only allowed to use the oldest generation of centrifuges for 10 years. All other facilities were converted to non-nuclear use to avoid any potential proliferation risk. Uh, I've already mentioned the extensive monitoring and verification protocols that it agreed to by the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, and that agency has been certifying compliance of Iran with the, these very restrictive terms of the JCPOA. Uh, most recently, as of May 2019, the IAEA certified that Iran remained in compliance. In exchange for this, the U.S. and its other partners, the three European countries, Germany, Britain, and France, and then China and Russia, and those six countries together are called the P5 plus one often, which means the permanent five members of the U.N. Security Council plus Germany. Those parties uh, agreed to end some sanctions and suspend other sanctions that had been imposed on uh, Iran multilaterally, subject to waivers that required periodic recertification. So every... A certain period, as the IAEA certified that Iran was in compliance, then those countries were to um, issue waivers on sanctions so that they would continue to be suspended. This agreement was ratified by a unanimous vote of the UN Security Council under Resolution 2231 and became accepted international law in 2015. Okay. So,
0: all right. So that's, thank you for that. And then, so what has happened now to this deal since the Trump administration took office? And of course, it is the U.S. that's unilaterally withdrawn, but the other parties have not. Is that right?
2: That's right. Okay. in May 2018, uh, President Trump announced that the U.S. was withdrawing from the agreement, um, and he did so citing first a presentation given by the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who had mm. given a presentation in the Israeli Defense Ministry that basically was a slideshow about the history of Iran's nuclear program. It had no new information in it. But the, President Trump cited it as evidence that Iran would never be a peaceful actor. And then he went on with his um, campaign claims and his presidential claims that the the deal was fundamentally quote-unquote rotten because the restrictions on the Iranian program were not permanent and uh, because the agreement did not cover other Iranian activities in the region such as developing ballistic missiles or supporting armed groups. Uh, What's happened since then is pretty straightforward. The Trump administration um, withdrew without cause in the sense that they didn't even allege that Iran was failing to comply with the agreement. So on the terms of the agreement itself, they just unilaterally withdrew and breached. But the administration went much further than that. It went out to punish, it set out to punish countries that continue to respect the agreement and even sought to prevent Iran through a variety of measures from complying with the agreement itself, creating a crisis that's entirely of the U.S.'s making with respect to the nuclear deal. So Mm. first... It's punishing other countries through imposing sanctions on those countries for trading with Iran, and secondly, it also um, desisted from waivers on Iran's ability to export uh, low enriched uranium. So it basically prevents Iran now from getting its uh, low enriched uranium stockpile out of the country, which is causing that stockpile to exceed the limits under the agreement, and you know triggering a kind of formal challenge to the agreement in some ways, but that's because the U.S. is actually re- kind of con- constraining Iran to retain that stockpile instead of doing the thing that is required and permitted under the agreement, which is to export low enriched uranium as it develops it out of the country. The oh. Europeans, the Chinese, and the Russians all um, are not only sticking with the agreement but have expressed their indignation at the U.S.'s position. Europe has attempted to pass a blocking statute first to shield its own companies from and countries from secondary sanctions imposed by the United States. Yeah, that
0: was and going to be my question, if I could just interrupt for one thing, sure. because you said that the U.S. was punishing anybody who still dealt with Iran, but yet we know that these uh, other parties, UK, France, Germany, Russia, and China, had not withdrawn. So is that, is it, maybe you could just explain in your answer whether or not that means that they're also being warned.
2: They are indeed being warned. In fact, the United States has been very clear that any country, this includes all the parties, all the remaining parties, Russia, China, France, Britain, um, Germany, mm-hmm. that trade with Iran and also its other major trading partners such as South Korea, Japan, all of which are allies of the United States, um, Turkey, Iraq, and others that are um, clients uh, for Iranian oil, that all of these countries will face steep uh, US sanctions if they continue to trade with Iran. Um, for the first year between when Trump announced that the US was withdrawing in May 2018 and this year, May 2019, the US issued waivers to certain countries exempting them from those sanctions. It has since um, suspended those waivers. So in other words, beginning in May 2019, every country is subject to sanctions by the United States if they buy Iranian oil and not just oil, but a host of other products as well. Um, so metals, petrochemicals, um, all kinds of things, basically everything that Iran exports. Mm. What the Europeans have tried to do in order to get around this is establish a mechanism to basically barter um, uh, for oil for goods without having to use financial transactions that would trigger American sanctions. Uh, this instrument is called the Instrument of in Support of Trade Exchanges, but when you see it referred to in the media, it'll be called INSTEX, which is its <laughs> acronym. Um, yeah. And it's an attempt to bypass this, but that would require companies to use this mechanism and hope that if they use this mechanism in order to um, purchase things from Iran, uh, including oil in exchange for other sales to Iran, for for example, car parts or airplane parts or other kinds of things that they might be um, providing to Iran, that they would not be sanctioned. And most European countries, uh, sorry, most European companies have found both the blocking statute um, the attempt by the Europeans to indemnify their own companies from any sanctions and this, this mechanism, inadequate protection. And so no matter what European countries are saying about their continued participation in the agreement, the companies in um, Europe that were some of the most significant new investors in Iran after this deal was um, struck have Uh, Withdrawn completely from Iran. So essentially, Iran is not benefiting from any of the new investment because companies are very afraid. All of them have exposure to the U.S. market. All of them use an international banking system that's dollar denominated, and they are very concerned about what would happen if they face U.S. sanctions.
0: Moral, uh, let me or, just ask one question. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt as well, but because you're describing something that's incredibly complex to execute in these barter arrangements. I know that, you know, this happened uh, in the disintegrating Soviet Union and, and thereafter uh, when there was literally no money. But but how is this done on the part of companies or through governments? Because companies may not want airplane parts if they're dealing in something else, or you know what I mean, in terms right. of the barter.
2: Yeah. So there are two different things. There is... Um, The blocking statute by the European Union, which is intended to say if the United States attempts to sanction you, um, you know, Airbus or whatever, German Siemens and so on we will indemnify, we will block that ability of the United States to sanction you. But of course, um, how that will work in practice, whether that would actually be sufficient to protect the companies is unknown. This, this idea of a tit-for-tat arrangement in which if the US imposes sanctions, the Europeans would impose counter sanctions dates back to the 1990s when the United States first introduced secondary sanctions with respect to Libya and Iraq. Mm-hmm. And at that time, uh, the Clinton administration, they sort of both sides pulled back from actually imposing secondary sanctions and going forward with this kind of tit-for-tat battle. Uh, since that time, the Bush administration um, was willing to actually go forward with secondary sanctions, and the Trump administration shows every likelihood of doing so as well. And so now the Europeans would really be put to the test whether they're prepared to really stand behind that blocking statute. Their own companies don't believe it, and so they're not willing to take the risk. And then in addition, the barter mechanism would travel through the government. In other words, the government would create... Uh, And a sort of fixed amount that's available for goods to be traded to Iran in exchange for money designated, you know, denominated in European currencies, that is the equivalent of the oil value that they get. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's another government mechanism that's attempting to enable trade to happen between the countries, but that doesn't travel through the dollar. Um, Again, it's completely untested. Whether or not some certain kinds of pilot transactions can be attempted through an instrument like this um, is one possibility that is now going to have to be explored as Europe and also Russia has suggested that it might offer some kind of limited financial help to barter oil for goods as well as a backstop to the European attempt. The Chinese are amongst the largest um, trade partners of Iran and um, were purchasing as much as 650,000 barrels a day of Iranian crude Mm -hmm. prior to the U.S. sanctions being uh, reimposed. So they, too, may try to pursue something like this. And indeed, under the Obama administration sanctions, a number of countries, India, China, Turkey, others, did pursue various kinds of barter arrangements. But, of course, none of this can possibly yield the volume of trade that would be possible without sanctions or that, you know, that would be – that that was in effect as of 2018, prior to the Trump administration's actions. It's also worth noting that the minute the Trump administration announced this, and even before sanctions were reimposed, disinvestment from Iran began dramatically. Wow. So there's the what Iran had hoped to gain from this agreement in terms of ability to grow its economy. And then there's the way in which, the on top of that, the sanctions have forced a massive contraction. Um, but just the mere threat of sanctions meant that Iran already lost all of those investment opportunities well before the sanctions themselves came to be imposed.
0: Okay. Thank you for that. That's an incredibly useful background context to kind of understand this very current moment. You're listening to Beneath the Surface, and I'm Susie Weising, and I'm speaking to Asli Bali. She's a professor of law at UCLA and she focuses on international security and nuclear non-proliferation and she uh as also does comparative law in the middle east so without wasting any more time let's take it to the current atta- uh, recent attacks on oil tankers in the gulf and do you think that iran was behind that and if so for what reason does it did it make sense
2: so let me just uh, say one thing about what Iran has done under the deal, and then I'll turn yeah, to the Um So Iran, as you noted in your introduction, is allegedly now, quote unquote, breaching. That doesn't make sense for the reasons that you stated. The U.S. is in breach. The U.S. Is, <laughs> has withdrawn. And what that means is that there's a clause under the JCPOA through which Iran may exceed the limits that it agreed to if other parties are not fulfilling their obligations under the uh, agreement. And so since the United States, of course, is not, Iran is engaging in a very carefully calibrated set of measured steps to signal to the other parties that there are going to be consequences, that if in the end, none of the other parties stands up to the United States and it's in position of literally punishments on countries for remaining, including Iran for remaining in this agreement, then Iran is also not going to be the only country in compliance and the deal will collapse. That's the message that Iran is... Um, giving to the other parties. And so the first thing it did was increase its stockpile of low-enriched uranium. Of course, as I mentioned, that's partly a result of the fact that the U.S. is not allowing it to export. Um, low enriched uranium anymore, and secondly, it increased the level of enrichment from 3.67 um, percent to 4.5 percent. What's important to understand about this is that neither of these moves are any kind of near-term proliferation risk. They have no meaningful impact on Iran's so-called breakout time, which is the time it would take for Iran to develop a weapon,
1: mm-hmm. which
2: remains at a 12-month 12, 12 months out. Uh, as it was under the JCPOA. If they violate the terms of the JCPOA, they're 12 months away at a minimum from being able to develop a weapon, uh, and nothing has changed about that. For Iran to produce enough fuel for a weapon, it would have to stockpile four times more uh, low enriched uranium at this point than it has, and it would then have to be able to enrich that to weapons grade at over 90%, way, way above anything they've done to date. And any move in this direction would trigger a million, um, you know, uh, red flags. The IAEA was able to report immediately within minutes that Iran had increased the level of enrichment from 3.67 to 4.5. Everyone in the international community would know under the intrusive monitoring regime what Iran was doing, and there would be um, the same amount of time to react or respond or take, um, take measures as there would have been uh, in any case under the JCPOA. So the bottom line is what they've done is extremely minimal. And of course, it's not in breach because the deal itself was already breached by the U.S. withdrawal. But in addition to this, yep. Iran is taking other measures. Um, now, whether Iran is itself, in fact, responsible for the uh, six attacks that have taken place uh, against oil at tankers in the Gulf uh, between May and June of this year is unclear who is behind them as a matter of hot dispute. Uh, it's very likely that Iran is, in fact, behind at least a proportion of those strikes. But there are other actors in the region that have an interest in engaging in um, aggressive actions that illustrate, demonstrate Iran's disruptive potential. So there could also be a false flag operation underway. Some, there may be a mix of actors. It's not clear. It is worth noting that beyond the terms of the nuclear deal, the Trump administration also designated a wing of the Iranian military as a terrorist organization, which is the first ever Mm -hmm. that a standing part of a, a government would be designated a terrorist organization. This happened in May at the same time that Trump significantly tightened sanctions against the country's oil, aluminum, iron, and copper industries. So at that point, um, things had begun to dramatically escalate. The U.S. also um, announced that the Pentagon had authorized the deployment of an additional 1,000 troops to the Gulf as a deterrent to Iran. And it's in this context that we've seen these strikes on tankers. And so what we're seeing is very much parallel to the kind of calibrated and measured escalation on the nuclear deal front, another kind of escalation that's happening um, in real terms in the, in the Persian Gulf itself. That has escalated even more dramatically in something that is not disputed at all, which is that Iran shot down a U.S. military drone mm-hmm. over the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, Iran says it was over its territory. The U.S. says it was in international waters. This happened in mid-June, and, it, and the response from the U.S. was... President Trump saying that he called off strikes just as they were about to proceed and instead authorized a cyber attack against Iran's missile systems. But the idea that we came that close to a hot war is very, very striking. More recently, British forces seized an Iranian oil tanker bound for Syria off Gibraltar, Um, earlier this month. And in reaction, British forces say that Iranian vessels tried to disrupt the passage of a British oil tanker through the strait. Now, one thing to note um, as these tensions escalate is that this is not the first time this is happening. One of the things that um, happened in that on-again, off-again confrontation with Iran during the 80s and 90s was a tanker war in which U.S. warships in 1988 sunk an Iranian frigate, again in the Strait of Hormuz, and shelled oil platforms um, in response to Iranian restrictions on shipment and movement through that strait during the Iran-Iraq war, that set of um, back-and-forth tit-for-tat strikes ultimately culminated in a USS um, warship, the Vincennes, accidentally shooting down an Iranian air flight um, killing 290 civilian passengers, another mm. episode that Iran, Iranians certainly remember. And so there is a possibility here of significant escalation. Uh, and there is real tension that's being ratcheted up. The U.K. is now sending a second warship to the Gulf. It announced um, yesterday, and I mentioned the United States has said that there are going to be an additional 1,000 troops deployed and maybe additional deployments. So what we're seeing is a bleeding over of the crisis in the nuclear deal into the possibility of of real um, hot conflict.
0: Well, okay, so we have, I, I want to extend our time a little bit because I really want, since you've done so much, the Bali, to introduce this. Now, you just, you also said that the unprecedented thing that this administration did was to characterize the Iranian, was it? a Guard. Yeah, Revolutionary Corps. Guard as a terrorist organization. And that has been one of the complaints throughout that Iran is fostering terrorism throughout the region, through Hezbollah, even, I, I don't don't know who else. But um, maybe you could just address what you think that role is in the regions. Others would say that Iran could be a force for stability in the region. And you've got, you know, a series of countries that a lot of instability, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, and and especially given what's going on in Yemen today, are the U.S. are sorry, are Iranian interests necessarily opposed to those of the U.S.? How do you see it?
2: So, I mean, it's clear that they're not necessarily opposed in the sense that the U.S. and Iran had a history of being allied with one another, um, you know, 40 years ago, right? So Mm -hmm. these countries have permanent interests at some level, regardless of what government or regime is in in power, and it's possible for them to be aligned. Uh, And indeed, there are many reasons one might imagine they would be aligned. This was one of the reasons that cooperation after 9-11, when the United States sustained attacks um, by Sunni terrorist organizations, seemed to make perfect sense. Iran and the United States had aligned interests in Afghanistan, and that was made very clear by the cooperation. Uh, Of course, the axis of evil speech and so on, which I've already mentioned, uh, brought an end to that cooperation. There's no doubt that at the moment, Iran and the United States are on opposite sides of many conflicts in the region, but the way in which the Iranian role is characterized is, is... Many times, I think, misunderstood. For starters, it's often the case that in analyses of the Middle East, there's a presentation that suggests that Iran is behind all of the different conflicts in the region or is the principal cause for destabilization in the region. Any analysis of the Middle East that suggests that any single actor is the cause of destabilization or is the sole source of conflict is going to be profoundly mistaken to begin Mm -hmm. with. But in addition, the actual role that Iran plays in this list of countries needs to be understood in context. So as an example, Iran was in a long-term alliance with the Syrian government, the Assad regime, um, originally to counter Iraq, which was a real threat to Iran um, and attacked Iran in the Iran-Iraq War. Um, And although Iran has continued to play an important role providing ground forces to shore up Assad's ability to respond or put down uh, the, those who are revolting against him in, in Syria, the true game changer in Syria was not Iran's role, but Russia's. So mm. while Iran has played a role, it has not been the most important causal factor in the turn that the Syrian civil war has taken, nor has it been the most important um, force in support of the Assad regime. In Lebanon, Iran entered that country because of the Israeli invasion in 1982. Mm -hmm. And it did so to offer defensive assistance to Shiite community under attack. And that, that led to the formation of a set of Shiite militias. And now the principal one of those is Hezbollah. But again, that was provoked by a completely different crisis that was generated by the Israeli invasion and has been largely about providing aid to an actor that has its own interest in a specific domestic context in Lebanon. In Iraq, Iran was the beneficiary of the United States' overthrow of Saddam, which brought to an end Sunni rule in that country. And with a plurality of Shia in in a neighboring country that Iran borders, it's totally unsurprising that it would play a role, although that role is vastly exaggerated. And this brings us to Yemen. And here again, you have a conflict. That has roots related to the country's geography, demography, intra-Arab politics from the mid-20th century forward, um, the Saudi Arabian government's decision to turn Yemen into a proxy for its various conflicts with other Arab regimes beginning in the 60s, many things. The Houthi rebellion is a continuation of what is an unresolved civil war not caused by Iran, and indeed, in which Iran is not a principal actor. Instead, it's the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates, two core allies of the United States, that have led an intervention since 2015 that has generated a massive humanitarian catastrophe in that country. And Iran's role, which has been relatively minor, has been offering assistance to the Houthis in their um, in defense against that intervention. So what does this whole picture say? The basic role of Iran in the region has been that of a large and influential country that has many natural allies responding to events in rational ways uh, that may seem destabilizing if what your goal is in the region is unambiguous domination by the US and allies like Israel Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates but viewed from a more traditional sort of lens of what you expect in a region a large country with a large population and a significant economy Iran has been acting largely as a balancer uh, in the region against the um, influence and intervention of its rivals in the region. It's also important to remember that there are so many constraints on Iran's ability to exert power, including its relative economic weakness, the massive sanctions it faces, quite independent of the nuclear agreement, by the way. It had other it faced other sanctions for ballistic missile and other activities. Its regional containment, the United States absolutely encircles Iran on all borders with military bases in Central Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Oman, the Emirates, Qatar, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, and Turkey. Literally every single border of Iran hosts a U.S. military base. (laughs) And anyway, Iran's uh, conventional forces are relatively limited. So these are constraints that have nothing to do with JCPOA or the Iranian nuclear deal and are just the reality of what Iran is able to do in the region, the notion that it is a principal source of destabilization in the region is largely overblown.
0: I'm so glad that you said that, and in fact called it a balancer. And of course the latest news is the United Arab Emirates is going to withdraw, it looks like, from the war in Yemen, and we will have to see how that plays out. But we j- I'm gonna, We have another three minutes and that's not very much time, Asibali, but I'd love to hear your view. Once Trump said, okay, well he doesn't really want to go to war with Iran, he said, but John Bolton will go to war with anyone, uh, you know, sort of making a joke of it. What do you think is the likely trajectory of this conflict as it's being played out?
2: I mean, the truth is that President Trump may not have an appetite for war, but the policies of his administration have consequences. And the fact that he's filled his administration with those who do seek confrontation with Iran, John Bolton, but also Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, means (laughs) that... Uh, there's a real risk. Moreover, U.S. allies in the region have been uh, emboldened by the U.S. position, Israelis, the Saudis, the Emiratis. These are reckless partners, and there's a real possibility of escalation. What we see at the moment is incremental escalation short of direct military conflict, um, and that is comparable to the incremental approach that Iran is pursuing with respect to the deal itself. So it shows that there's equally no appetite in Iran for a direct military confrontation. That said... What is in place in terms of the sanctions is an absolute stranglehold on the country that is likely to produce a humanitarian crisis on the scale of what the U.S. provoked in Iraq in the 1990s. Mm. And that is destabilizing in and of itself for Iran. That country is probably going to try to pursue a holding pattern until the U.S. 2020 presidential election. And indeed, the Iranians themselves have a presidential election coming up in 2021. Hardliners in Iran have been massively Um, strengthened by the Trump administration's moves that have discredited reformists, the consequences of those two elections are likely to have an enormous impact on the trajectory. But in the meantime, the possibility of escalation accidentally triggered um, by miscalculation, either by the U.S. or Iran or the other parties, um, what we saw recently with the U.K., activity by Israel, by the Gulf Arabs, et cetera, all of this holds the real risk of stumbling into war. And that is an absolute tragedy.
0: (laughs) I can't thank you enough for that incredible summary and analysis, Asibali. It really helps us, and um, I'd love to be able to call on you again, of course, as this unfolds, and especially uh, when we see what happens with the elections. Asibali is a professor of law at UCLA School of Law, and she served as the director of the of UCLA Center for Near Eastern Studies. She's also the faculty director of the UCLA Promise Institute for Human Rights, and her research focuses, as you can probably tell, on international law with emphasis on uh, security and, non- and nuclear non-proliferation, and comparative law of the Middle East with an emphasis on human rights and constitutional design. Thank you so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio, Asu Bali.
2: It's been my pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Vaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin magazine, and special thanks to Robert Brenner, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.